This is Stacey Harbaugh with your local news coming to you live from the downtown studios of WORT. Here's tonight's headlines. Wisconsin regulators have given the go-ahead on the second phase of Alliant Energy's new solar energy plan. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that regulators unanimously approved their plan to buy or build six solar farms across Wisconsin. These solar farms would sit in Dane, Grant, Green, Rock, and Washera counties. The power from the six plants is estimated to create enough electricity to power around 100,000 homes in the state. It's all a part of the plan by Alliant to replace their coal-fired power plants in the next two years. In other green energy-related news, Wisconsin's largest utility company is asking to introduce a rate hike for all its customers to help fund a shift to clean energy. The WEC Energy Group is asking its customers to pay an extra $5 to $6 per month to help pay for renewable energy projects. WC Energy Group owns several energy companies in Wisconsin, including We Energies and Wisconsin Public Service. The funds will be used to shut down two power plants, one that runs off of fossil fuels and another that runs off coal. Tom Content, the executive director of the Citizens Utility Board, told the Wisconsin State Journal that he doesn't think the rate increase is appropriate and that the company should not expect their customers to cover a building that wasn't helping to keep their lights on. Six Wisconsin Ojibwe tribes penned a letter to U.S. Senators Ron Johnson and Tammy Baldwin, objecting to their plan to remove protections for gray wolves. The two senators introduced a bill last month to remove federal protections for gray wolf, the gray wolf in several states, including Wisconsin. The tribes are being represented by the nonprofit environmental group Earth Justice, and they say that senators never reached out to ask about the impact their proposed legislation would have on the tribes. The tribes say that the state cannot be trusted to manage the population of gray wolves in Wisconsin, pointing to the wolf hunt last year where hunters killed significantly more wolves than anticipated. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 1,642 new confirmed COVID cases yesterday, with a seven-day average of 1,205 new confirmed cases every day over the past week. This continues the upward trend of cases across the state, with a percentage of positive test results sitting at 9% over the past week. Now, despite the rise in the number of cases, the number of deaths from the virus remains low, with no new reported deaths across the state yesterday. Now, the total number of people who have died from the virus in Wisconsin is currently 12,881. Here in Dane County, there were 371 new confirmed COVID cases yesterday, and uh, 29 people remain hospitalized from the virus. Cases also continue to rise in the Madison School District. There were 189 confirmed COVID cases across the district last week between both staff and students, an increase of 40 cases from the week before. That's according to the Capital Times. And now on to today's top stories. Earlier this week, 
uh, school superintendent Carlton Jenkins unveiled the preliminary budget for the Madison Metro School District's upcoming school year. Now, Madison Teachers Union says the proposed wage increase is not enough to keep up with surrounding school districts. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout has more. The proposed budget was released by Superintendent Carlton Jenkins at Monday night's school board meeting. The budget proposes a base wage increase of 2% for all school staff. Additionally, an average of 2% raises will be given to staff throughout steps and lanes, which are raises based on experience. At Monday's meeting, Superintendent Jenkins lauded the work of teachers and staff at the schools. At MMSD, we also know the success of our students is based in large part of our world-class educators and personnel who make our schools what they are. They're really special and have always been special in Madison. We're committed to recruiting a diverse group of staff so our schools look like our communities. Yes, we also continue to provide competitive wages and benefits in order to ensure we can attract and retain top educators. That's our aim. The 2022-2023 budget is about $5 million more than it was last year. But schools are still struggling with staffing issues across the country, and Madison is no exception. Savian Castro is the vice president of the Madison Metro School Board. He says they are doing everything they can to keep their staff on board. Yeah, we're looking at things from expanding and permanently implementing mental health days. We are continuing to provide relevant and necessary uh, professional development so that all of our schools welcome all of our students. And then our health care is among the most competitive health care options from an employer in the region. And so I think trying to have schools that are on a mission where everyone can feel welcome and involved in that school's mission means a lot. But the union representing Madison's teachers, Madison Teachers Inc., or MTI, says that they are disappointed with the low pay increase for teachers across the district. In a statement yesterday, MTI called the 2% base wage increase disappointing. It's less than half than the maximum amount allowed under state law of 4.7%. MTI says nearby school districts like Wanakee and Sun Prairie started their pay raise negotiations at at least 4.6%. Michael Jones is the president of MTI. He says the increase is not enough to attract and retain enough staff. At the board meeting, that being a public meeting, it sounds all in good and say, hey, we're giving everyone a 4% raise. But when you actually break it down and you actually look at the rate of inflation and cost of living adjustment, you're still underpaying employees and they're not still going to be able to keep up with the rate of inflation in terms of like actually being able to afford to live in Madison. Castro says that the issue is not one unique to Madison. Almost every public school district in the U.S. is in a hard spot, especially because when we look at the federal dollars being one-time money, it's hard to address some of the long-term systemic needs that school districts face, and we can't sustain that level of investment beyond 2024. Jones says that he doesn't necessarily disagree with Castro, but the district can still do more to attract new staff. Now, to be fair, it hasn't been the case in a lot of districts across the country and a lot of districts in Wisconsin. So Madison is not some sort of unique experience, but it is it's still very true that we are experiencing this teacher exodus that's honestly been going on for more than a few years, even before COVID, just because of 
the state of education in Wisconsin and how we treat uh, workers and how we how we fund the system as a, on a whole. MTI did point out that there were many things in the proposed budget that they fully supported. One such item is the expansion of all-day 4K programs. Under the proposed budget, the district would add 14 new sections across eight locations around Madison. The proposed budget also includes increased funding for social workers throughout the district. According to the budget, the National Association of Social Workers recommends a ratio of students to social workers in a district of 250 to 1. But in Madison schools, that ratio is around 592 to 1, more than double the recommended level. To combat this, the district plans to increase the budget for social workers district-wide by over 10 percent. The district says that this will allow them to hire more social workers, getting closer to lowering the student-to-social worker ratio. The Madison School Board is slated to approve next year's budget in June. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. It's 6.15, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. As new developments pop up all around Madison, one group is pushing for more housing developments around the city uh, as a way to drive down housing costs and address homelessness. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Will Ohoit, the lead of the nonprofit group Madison is for the People. So, Will, just to start things off, what is Madison is for people? What do you guys do and how did you get started? Uh, So Madison is for people is a local YIMBY group. Um, YIMBY stands for Yes in My Backyard. um, And it's really, we're really a a pro-housing group. So we are dedicated to um, making sure that all kinds of housing can be built across Madison. Um, you know, it's in contrast to NIMBY or Not in My Backyard, which is um, uh, people who fight against housing. Um, we got started uh, in August of last year. Uh, I actually put a post up on Reddit, um, and I was looking for other people who wanted to join a YIMBY group and organize. Um, you know, this is something that's really been sweeping across the nation. I think a lot of people, especially in the past two years with the housing crisis, have noticed that, um, you know, just the way we build cities right now is not sustainable or, uh, you know, good for anyone, good for everyone, I should say. Um, so, you know, we, we tend to sprawl. We tend to push people further out. We tend to assume everyone's going to be driving a car and that they're going to be using a car to get everywhere. Um, and we don't really build density or any sort of um, infill housing. Uh, we, we do, but we build very little of it. Um, so, yeah, I, I threw a post up on Reddit. Um, I was, it was actually after the Wonder Bar was um, pushed back by Plan Commission again. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people were a little upset about that because we were here's, you know, a few hundred units of housing, and we're going to be um, delaying it yet again for the Wonder Bar. And you mentioned uh, this is part of the sort of a nationwide YIMBY movement, and you're part of a group called YIMBY Action, correct? A nationwide group. Uh, What can you tell me about them? Yeah, so YIMBY Action started in San Francisco. Um, We joined YIMBY Action officially in, I think, November of last year. Um, so as 
being part of EMB Action, we get access to the tool set that they use. So that helps us organize petition, maintain a mailing list, that sort of thing. Um, and it's entirely um, member-driven. So you can join and donate, or we also have volunteer members who just donate their time. EMB Action started, uh, I mean, I think a lot of people recognize that the the source of like the modern housing crisis is in California. So places like San Francisco and LA where um, you can make six figures and still not be able to afford a home. Um, and so Yimby Action started from a group of people who just got together and recognized that um, we, we need to build housing. There are people who are being forced out of the city who can't afford to live here. Um, and they, started organizing to uh, basically change the laws in California to make it easier to build housing. Um, and then from there, uh, they have a number of chapters nationwide. There's also a few smaller independent groups, but Yimby Action is, I believe, the biggest one in the nation. And then now looking at the city of Madison here, what sort of projects are you involved in? What do you think needs to be addressed here in Madison? Yeah, so I wrote about this in my op-ed, um, which is in Cap Times. Um, I think the biggest things that need to change are just the the general rules that we go through. So we, we support specific projects, um, but it's not realistic for us to go out and support every apartment building um, that is proposed. So like the Speedway project, we support that because it, I think, is emblematic of a lot of the issues that permeate our housing discussion. So you here you have an empty gas station and someone is proposing to build apartments on top of it. Um, and people are pushing back because it's, it's four stories, that's too big, it doesn't have enough parking, um, where are people going to park? Um, I don't want to see a shadow, I don't want people seeing it in my backyard, uh, that sort of thing. But what's there right now is an empty gas station and we're in a housing crisis. Like we need homes for people. So I think that specific project is, is really emblematic of a lot of things, but in general, what we support is uh, changing the rules. So removing parking minimums, um, removing rezoning petitions so that um, once a decision is made by the plan commission regarding a housing project, we can't overturn it. Um, I don't think there's any, single process done by the city that has so many points where a decision can be overturned. Um, you know, if you want to build an apartment building and you rezone it, you have to go to plan commission, go through all the public meetings, rezone it. If people disagree, they can uh, file a rezoning petition. Then it goes to a three-quarter vote to the council. Uh, if three-quarters of the council approve the rezoning, then you're rezoned, but you still don't even have a permit to build a building. And so now you have to go through another whole process. Um, and so really, I, I think we need to just start thinking about why we have so many points where we can say no to housing and update those to be points where we can say yes to housing. And you mentioned the Speedway Road project. Can you sort of go into that a little bit for me here. What is sort of the history behind some of that? And what are you guys, what exactly have you guys been doing to sort of push for that? Yeah, so Speedway Road, it's uh, it's at 3734 Speedway Road. It used to be a quick trip, or it used to be a different gas station. And then Quick Trip bought the company that owned it. I think it was Stop and Go. 
Um, and then Quick Trip shut down the gas station in August of last year. Um, and a developer came in uh, sometime this year and proposed building um, housing there. Um, and, you know, I found out about it because someone reached out to me and said, hey, these there's a local neighborhood group that's starting their own petition. They're trying to fight against it. Um, and I, I think that a lot of their points were um, not particularly good. Uh, so, you know, we should build housing. Housing does not need one parking spot per person. It doesn't need uh, to be perfect. Um, we just, at this point, I think we should be saying yes to a lot more housing. Uh, so we found out about the, the local neighborhood group's petition, um, and we started our own petition. Uh, we posted it on Reddit. We emailed people. We posted it on Facebook, just trying to get the word out. Um, we got over 200 signatures, um, and we showed up to plan commission, um, and we were speaking in support of it. Um, you know, there were a lot of people who were speaking against it, but I think the fact that we had people who were willing to show up, who were willing to sign a petition um, that garnered 215 signatures, which is a pretty good amount, um, signals that housing is actually pretty popular. It's popular across the city. Yeah, so that, that was the main thing we did. We, we showed up to neighborhood meetings and we uh, emailed the alder about it as well. And what is the status of that at this time? Has that, is that still working its way through committees and things like that? Yeah, so the plan commission approved it unanimously. Um, so then from there, it normally would have just gone to the common council, I believe. But the property owners around the property filed a petition opposing it. So now um, there is a hearing scheduled at common council in May for the Common Council to vote on the Plan Commission's decision. Uh, after that, if the they need a two-thirds vote to overturn it, so if two-thirds, if fewer than two-thirds of the Common Council vote to overturn the Plan Commission's decision, then the process will continue moving forward. However, realistically, they're probably going to file a lawsuit and try and delay the project even more. Um, so something that was decided in March could take through the end of the year to actually be decided. And now one of the things I know you guys are working on is reducing sprawl. Uh, what Can you tell me, what is sprawl? What exactly does that mean? So sprawl is horizontal development. When you drive on I-94 highway and you get to the edge of Madison and you see a group of single-family homes going up in a farm field, that's sprawl. Sprawl is pushing people to move away from where the city life is. It's pushing people away from where their jobs are, where uh, commerce, grocery stores, medicine, parks, all of that sort of thing are, um, and pushing them to the edge. And then when they are pushed out there, those people actually need a car to get anywhere. So they don't have a choice. They can't uh, most of the time, they can't bike to work. They can't walk to a grocery store. Um, they don't really have a choice on how to move around. They're forced into an automobile. 
Um, a lot of the people who live in those developments, they would choose to live in infill density housing in the city. So um, they would choose to live in apartments or condos or duplexes or any of the sort of infill housing that um, we, we call the missing middle. Uh, it's the sort of thing where it's not a big apartment building. It's not a single family home. It's somewhere in between. Um, a lot of people would like to do that. But it's just unfortunately really difficult to build those kinds of units in the city because of the rules that we've put in place. Um, if you want to tear down a single family home and build a bigger single family home, which is happening in you know, Vancouver, Austin, L.A., all of these cities where they have single family only zoning, that's easy to do. If you want to take a home and make it a home for two or three families, that ends up being a very difficult and long process. Um, and so people just don't do it. They just, uh, you get people like Viridian Homes who will build on the edge of the city. Um, and then when those spaces fill up, uh, instead of building density inside, they just keep building further and further out. Um, it's bad for our environment. It adds to our carbon footprint. Uh, it adds to wastewater runoff. Uh, and it's, frankly expensive. It costs a lot of money to fund the infrastructure for those kinds of developments. And Will, just to sort of wrap things up here, here do you have just any final thoughts of anything you'd like to share with me? Yeah, I, I would say if anyone is interested, if anyone is um, interested in getting more housing built, um, they can either join our group. So Madison is for people, uh, Madison is for people at, uh, at .org, or just show up to a, a local meeting and voice your support. Um, I think for a long time, the kinds of people who have been showing up to these meetings are, I, I believe they're earnest, but I think they're wrong in trying to defend and fight against change. Um, and we need voices of support who understand that, you know, it's actually not going to be the end of the world if we build apartments here. It's going to be homes for 20 families. Um, it's, you know, maybe someone can get rid of a car and walk around. You know, there are a lot of benefits to infill density housing. And if you are in support of that, the best thing you can do is show up and voice your support. I've been talking with Will Ohovich, lead of Madison is for People. Will, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me here today. Thank you, Nate. And you're listening to that handcrafted local news here in WORT. Stick around. We've got more coming up in the second half, like fermenting wort, which takes a trip to the funk factory to learn old brewing traditions. Transparency Talk peers into other states to learn how open their governments are. And Radio Chipstone deals with hate and its relationship to problematic art. But now we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back after we check in on some world headlines. just about 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. 
This week on Fermenting Wart, resident brewer Colin Morgan spoke with Kyle Metz of Funk Factory Gooseria here in Madison. Their Madison-centric Lambic-style beers are something you truly can't get anywhere else. This is Fermenting Wart. I'm your host, Colin Morgan. This week, I'm at Funk Factory Gooseria with Kyle Metz. Kyle, could you describe a little bit about the beers that Funk Factory does and why? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I think first and foremost, like at the very core of what we strive to achieve is uh, our, our true like Lambic inspired stuff, very much following in that Belgian tradition, trying to adhere to every little minute detail and, and do it properly, um, which there's not a lot of people doing outside of Brussels. And, uh, yeah, so definitely at the core of Funk Factory, it is the true spontaneous stuff because, kind of because we have, as a result of the tapping here and um, being open several times a week, we had to branch outside of that and do other beers as well. Otherwise, we just wouldn't have enough for people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we started doing like a lot of like Saison and Wild Ale stuff as well that doesn't necessarily adhere to like the Lambic standards. It has more flexibility and like, you know, more, more room for interpretation. But yeah, always, always rooted in, you know, mixed culture, oak aged, uh, oak fermented stuff. Uh, kind of doing like sours the slow way, using good whole ingredients, trying to source locally, whether, whether it's the true Lambic stuff or not. Why do you think that you guys settled on Lambic styles? You guys start off with Lambic, which is unheard of for sure in Wisconsin. Also super unique and fantastic, but why do you think it started off like that? It is so unique. Uh, it's in Wisconsin, certainly, but outside of Brussels, like you're really not seeing uh, breweries popping up or blenderies popping up doing this type of stuff. So I think there's like that, that intrigue. It's very different than conventional brewing. A different type of person who's into like these wild, various wild ferments across the board, whether it be beer or wine or dabbling in, you know, meats or cheeses or... It definitely speaks to like a different person. It's more like an artistic expression. So the traditional beer drinker, at least in America, has an idea of what beer is. Correct. So how is Lambic different than, than that? What what can people expect from a, a Lambic beer or a, a wild fermented beer? For sure. Uh, so the main difference that's going to get you right out of the gate is uh, the cultures that we use. Uh, the cultures that actually ferment the wort. So as opposed to a traditional brewery where they're using like mainly Saccharomyces strains or like controlled lacto regret. We, we accept the yeast of bacteria that are ambient naturally occurring all around us. And those give beers a very unique flavor. Most notably it's acidity, but also like funky, fruity, earthy flavors that you just don't get from your traditional brewer's yeast strains. If you poured this to someone who'd just been drinking Bud Light their whole life, they might not know it's beer. <laughs> they really might not. Um, Really what it comes down to is the, is the, the cultures that actually uh, ferment the product and kind of develop and create these unique flavors and aromas. These are, are much more expressions of the, the natural world around us and what you can get at one specific point. For sure. Which is awesome. And it, it makes a product that's totally different than pretty much any other thing that we've got out there as far as beer goes. Exactly. I think that... There's definitely flavors in here that are not for everyone, and it takes an acquired taste and it could be polarizing. Um, once you start delving into like this this level of fermentation, harnessing different different bugs that are outside. Of the mm -hmm. So we kind of mentioned 
what makes it taste different, why it's different as far as a micro microbiological standpoint. So are there any techniques that you guys would use that would be different from a conventional brewer? For sure. So we would what's called a turbine mash. Uh, and basically what you're trying to get is a very dexterous work because these cultures are going to sit in this barrel for a very long time and they need something to nurture them uh, throughout the long run when they develop. So we're going through that extra step of doing like this really long turbine uh, mash to create a different work than your average brewery would be after. Bees and bacteria needs food so it can keep doing its thing. So you make something that's a little bit essentially denser yes. that allows different microflora to start eating at different times, maybe chew off a little bit of those bigger molecules, but whereas conventional brewers, they just make a wort that's as easily fermentable as possible because they want to just turn that around. No, ours is, ours is the opposite. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's, it's not a very good turnaround. I mean, we're, we're sitting on these beers for at least a year, sometimes three, maybe even longer. Uh, so based on, yeah, uh, we use different hops. Uh, we actually use aged hops, which seems counterintuitive to the brewing process. Uh, everyone's always looking for freshness, but we want the opposite. What do you think that gives? There's been talk into funkiness in these beers. Like, does it exclusively come from the yeast bacteria, or does it also, the hops also play into this too? Uh, which I think it does, for sure. I think there's still like, a lot of interesting flavors in those hops, and they develop, and definitely do come through in the beer and contribute. Yeah. It brings out almost like a, like a I call it like a cheesy quality. Very much so. Like, cheesy, but a very nice aged cheese. I would say, well, depending on, we, we bought a big lot of Holler Tower from, hmm. Uh, that'd be from the 2014 harvest. Uh, and to me right now, they're getting like very like almost like green tea-like, mm. which I think is really cool. But there's definitely that cheesiness there for sure. And there's still, still cool like citrusy flavors that do come through. Yeah. Like we've dry hopped them, dry hopped with them before. And I was honestly very surprised at how much flavor and aroma were still, still left. It was kind of intriguing because these hops are seven, eight years old now, which is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you told that's your average IPA drinker, they think I was not. It's very different. Conventional brewers, they, if a hop gets too old, it's just like, ah, just toss it. Toss it because in it, most cases, that's absolutely right. Right. For sure. But this is definitely the very old world, strange <laughs> to most people, a uh, little, little niche of the brewing world. For somebody that doesn't know Funk Factory, yeah. they're coming in. What beer do you want them to try first? And what do you want them to take away from Funk Factory? For sure. I'd say I would... Someone coming to Funk Factory for, for the first time, um, our Neard Slime kind of like, it's kind of made to kind of mimic like a second runnings of, of the Lambic, uh, the light, almost like table strength, Wild Ale. Definitely going to appeal to someone who is maybe used to wine or, you know, cocktail or something. So I'd say probably start with one of the Neard Spears or we go a few Saisons. We have a nice beer right now called Beard Tabla. Uh, which is actually a blend of uh, one of our tart saisons and beers. Nice and light, good drinking out. The weather's warm, very approachable. Definitely not too funky yet. It's on <laughs> the more tame end of the spectrum. So I'd, I'd say starting with a beer like that, like a Mirits or one of our bartenders can certainly point in the direction of like a good saison or something before you get to like the real spontaneous stuff. What I want people to get out of it, I kind of want people to open your minds, try something different. Uh, there's so many people that come in here who have never, ever, ever experienced something like this before. And it can be quite shocking to them upon first, first sip or two. But I kind of want it to be like an educational process. I like to think that people can have a dialogue with who's ever serving them and learn more about the processes and 
the history and culture behind this too. I want people to enjoy themselves, try something new, and then learn more about it. For Fermenting Warts, uh, thanks Kyle, and thanks for listening. Every other Thursday, our contributor Jonah Chester sits down with Tom Kamenick, founder and president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to talk about open records and open government. This week, Kamenick and Chester examine how other states do open records and how Wisconsin stacks up in comparison. Now remember, this isn't specific legal advice, so please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up this week? Jonah, I wish it would warm up, but uh, otherwise I'm doing all right. The cold is uh, persistent and apparently never ending, and it's very obnoxious by this point in the season. Today, we're looking at how other states do public records and open records laws, you know, as the saying goes, grass is always greener on the other side. Maybe not always in this case, but we're taking a look at uh, how other states handle public records today. So, Tom, uh, with that very rambly intro as uh, as preface, uh, talk to me about how open records laws vary from state to state. You know, we've all got our own unique way of doing things. Yeah, we're going to do a very high level look at these kind of things because there are 50 states and the federal government and they all do it very differently. So if I ever run out of topics for this show. I've got two years starting right with Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, one every other week. But so let's start off talking about whose records are subject to the laws, because that changes state by state. Wisconsin, I would give an A minus for this because our local governments and our state governments, all three branches are all subject to the open records law. I give the minus because uh, legislators get to delete their own records, but the legislature's records, the records of the body itself, are subject to the records law. So, But you go to other states, and pretty much it's always local re- records. So the, the state legislatures have always made their local cities and counties and school districts subject to records laws, but it's not always all three branches. So most commonly, they leave off judicial branches, so court records. You know, the actual filings in cases are always open, but there's a lot of internal court records that often are not in states. And in some states, it's executive agencies only. So like the governor's departments are subject, but not anything else. That's actually similar to how FOIA works for the federal government. And even as like simple elementary things as what a record even is varies from state to state, correct? Yeah, I'd give Wisconsin another A in this regard. Uh, In Wisconsin, anything in government's possession with information on it of any kind is a government record. Uh, That's really, really broad. Most states actually define records more narrowly, and they define it by content or purpose. They say the content of this record has to deal with the official business of government or or show the official actions of government. So you, you start getting a lot of exceptions for uh, information about third parties that's in the hands of government. You get a lot of arguments about, well, this wasn't a final action or it wasn't an official action. It was something unofficial or or it was peremptory. And uh, so it's easier in Wisconsin to avoid those kind of arguments. There's also some interesting differences about whether the record is the thing that has the information or if it's the information on it. So in Wisconsin, it's the thing. 
So you get to get that thing in whatever format it is if you want it. So if you want an audio tape, they have, you get the audio tape. If you want an electronic file, a .pdf file, a .doc file, you can get it in that format if you want. Other states, it's the information that's subject to the law, so they can take an audio tape and give you a transcription of it, or they can print out an email and not give you the original file. Now, this next one is really interesting because I always assumed that anywhere anybody with a few very limited exceptions could make public records requests. But as it turns out, there are a few states where that's not the case, right? Yeah, some states uh, limit it to their own citizens. There's there's one or two that say it has to be a person and it cannot be a, a business or a, uh, a media company itself cannot request. It has to come from the person, from an individual. And then moving along, we got fees. And, you know, those vary wildly, according to our prep doc from state to state. But being honest, don't they? We, we just covered this. Uh, we've covered this uh, the past couple of weeks. Don't they vary wildly within Wisconsin itself? Yeah, it's all over the place in Wisconsin, too. Um, one of the interesting things to look at is that a fair number of states actually set caps and say you cannot charge more than X amount or more than X dollars uh, per hour or more than X cents per page. And Wisconsin does not have that kind of a cap on it. And there's another there's another one that's common in most states. Most states also have deadlines, right? Yeah, this is almost everywhere except for Wisconsin. So Wisconsin gets a really low grade here. Uh, We just get this language saying as soon as practical and without delay. But most other states actually have a number of days as a deadline, usually written in business days. Some of them are two or three days. Uh, Some of them are more common to be five or ten in that range. But uh, in most states, they got to do this quickly. And, And some states even say that if they take longer than that, they don't get to charge you any fees for it. I love that it's the government equivalent of that old rule where it's like, if we don't have our pizza to you in 30 minutes or less, it's free. But it, it's just that with public records and you get five days instead. And then let's let's take a look at exemptions. How do those vary from state to state? We could spend days talking about individual differences. And it, it, there's a lot of them in Wisconsin and they're different everywhere. There's some overlap. But an interesting question that varies state to state is where do these exemptions come from? Not in a majority, but in quite a few number of states, the legislature is the only body that can create exemptions. Courts don't do any kind of balancing tests, and courts can't create their own blanket exemptions. So in Wisconsin, courts do, and courts can. So that's that's a knock against us here. And then moving on to sort of your your bread and butter, enforcement. How do states vary in terms of if somebody's uh, not in compliance with open records laws? Wisconsin runs about in the middle here. Uh, It's bad in that the only thing you can do is file a lawsuit. There's not any government agencies that help out with this, but it's good in that the lawsuits uh, allow for fees and the burden is on the government to prove their case. So it's helpful that way. But many, many states, most states actually have some kind of administrative process that isn't a lawsuit to challenge a denial. You know, and a lot of them, there is this like informal mediation, at least, where you can, it's a liaison between government custodians and individual requesters, where you can go to them and say, we're having a dispute. What do you think about this? And the the person will, or the department will, will tell them who they think is more likely right. And maybe that helps resolve it. But there's also states that have administrative appeals. So there's, there's a government office of some kind that's usually independent from everything else. And they are charged with issuing binding decisions in record disputes. So you don't have to file a lawsuit. You don't have to hire a lawyer to go do these. They are much simpler, much more straightforward 
uh, and often much quicker too. Yeah, I know Indiana, which is where I got my reporting chops as like a college student, they have an an open records counselor or like an access counselor or something that will basically issue decisions. Although I think, I think their decisions are non-binding. Nobody quote me on that. Everybody, everybody listening, go out and do your own fact checking on that one. But I'm pretty sure their decisions are non-binding, but basically you take your thing, say that this police agency didn't fulfill my open records requests and the counselor will rule one way or another, be like, yeah, they should have filled it or no, that was a valid exemption. Anyway, let me, let me jump in for a sec there. That's all that those offices do. And they handle hundreds of those every year, where as opposed to, you know, a court, the Ozaukee County Circuit Court might get one records lawsuit every year. And, you know, the judges just aren't experts in this area. But if you have a dedicated government agency, they see the same things over and over again. They handle things quickly. They know what they're doing. Uh, and, And in all these states, too, if you don't like their result, you still can file a lawsuit. But it's this nice to have, it's basically the equivalent of arbitration for uh, for records disputes. All right. Well, we have unfortunately come to the end of our time for this week's episode, for which I've been joined on the other end of the line, as always, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, as always, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me. Jonah, it's always a pleasure. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. It's 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. In tonight's episode of Radio Chipstone, Chasen director Amy Gilman tells contributor Jennifer Fields that the museum's upcoming process of taking a closer look at problematic art is going to be intense and not without a few surprises. The Chasen has an object in its collection entitled The Emancipation Group by Thomas Ball. It's a late 19th century marble sculpture and it depicts Lincoln standing over and raising his hand above a kneeling, formerly enslaved man uh, who looks like he's in the process of rising. And this object has been in the collection since the mid-1970s. And um, we at the museum have been thinking a lot about how we want to tell stories about the objects in our collection, not just about this object. But we have decided to take a deep dive into a single object in all of its elements and use it as a way to then think about how the museum could install, interpret, and think about all of its objects. So thinking about a sort of hyper-local approach, right? We want to go really narrow, really deep, really local. And then eventually we're going to go really broad. So we have invited the artist Sanford Biggers and now uh, collaborators uh, from this group called the Mask Consortium. And there they have invited to the museum over this week in April, a group of 15 people from all kinds of different disciplines to come and start to respond to the work. I know how museums are going to... interpret objects. I don't know how to break or how to think differently about the objects. And I don't actually need to talk to that many more museum people. I have worked in the field for 20 years, right? <laughs> I, need, <laughs> I need other people to help us, help me, think about our work differently. And so if you want to think differently, you need to bring in people who think differently than you. And so we've had this group here uh, for th- for a whole week who have been in the gallery and uh, responding in their own ways. And it has been at turns 
uh, emotional and challenging and um, invigorating and just kind of this incredible journey. And there are also unexpected conversations. Keon Harold is an award-winning jazz musician. In December of 2020, his 14-year-old son, Keon Harold Jr., was falsely accused of stealing a phone from a woman named Maya Ponsetto, now aptly nicknamed Soho Karen. On my walk over here is when I, you know, got the news that everything, you know, that she had pled guilty and the first thing I see is this statue. And, you know, my question is, why is it that you can come here with some of the most incredible thought leaders on the planet and still be fighting for the most basic ideals that, you know, my son is safe. You know, not that we should try to create, you know, a new monument, but just that my son is okay. That, you know, the person who um, violated him is, you know, accurately charged, you know, and held accountable, you know. So seeing that and seeing that, you know, it makes me ask the question, when will I ever be free to just be, to express, to, to love, to give, to, to do anything, to just literally hang out in the hotel lobby? Like, when will that ever be just normal? Do you feel like as you move through space and as you know your son is safe, do you feel like you're, that you're forever changed? Have you been transformed by this? Unfortunately, it's not an unexpected result. And it's not, um, you know, the situation is not, not common for, for children who look like mine or people who look like me. And that's the thing that we're fighting for. That's the change that we're pushing for. That's the reason why we're doing the work um, as much as possible. So people have another aspect, another vantage point to, to see that, you know what? I'm more like you than not. We have very similar um, goals. We have very similar ideals. We have very similar faiths and beliefs um, and to the most basic belief that, you know what, you should be able to be safe and free to walk around. My children should be f safe and free to, to grow up and be just like your children, you know? And if I do something wrong to you, I should be held accountable just like you should be held accountable if you do something to me. And not to be defined in that moment. I <laughs> exactly. recognized you. You're an accomplished musician. And I was like, I know who I know who that is. And I've probably seen you play because I go mm -hmm. to jazz and I go to shows mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. But how did I recognize you? From, From this one instance that some ignorant person has now put this, I don't want to say stain because I don't want it to be permanent, mm -hmm. but now has put this mark. You know, I, I can't let it um, and would never let it define me or my family. Um, but I will use it as, as fuel to, to bring about change, to bring about, um, you know, opportunity to give a platform and give voice to things that, you know, are otherwise, you know, pushed under the rug. You know, um, this scenario, I mean, I have debates and, and talks about it all the time, but, you know, you, when you think about Emmett Till, you think about, you know, many people going to jail and being incarcerated for far less for going to jail for life, for th a third strike, for marijuana, you know, for whatever. It's, it's, it's so many things that happen 
um, that are just, you know, not talked about because the person doesn't have the platform. Fortunately enough, I had already worked with some incredible people and had already, you know, um, you know, done, you know, very important work already that people would actually listen to me and give me a voice, you know. So, you know, I don't know, dealing with it every day is one of those things that I could say, you know what, oh my God, I'm crippled because of this thing happened. I'm crippled because I have to be a father and speak for my son, whatever, but no. Nah. This is, you know, a, a place that, you know, the next time this happens, maybe the ignorant person will think twice because, you know what, maybe you'll be charged, you know. Is there anything you want to say or any question that you want to answer that no one has asked you yet? And maybe that's an impertinent question. No, it's, um, I don't know, I feel like God, universe, you know, basically puts you in positions that you don't even know you need to be in. Me being here for this symposium, this, this you know, think tank is just kind of like, it couldn't have, the verdict, not even the verdict, just the, you know, the conviction, her pretty guilty, couldn't have happened at a more opportune time to me than to be walking in to see this and to realize that, you know what, we still have a long way to go. And for me, as an artist, I, I define an artist as a solutionist to create, you know, to create a solution for somebody else, to give another perspective to somebody else. And I'm just trying to figure out what does that say to me. Um, as I was playing, it was, I ended up playing anthems um, and spirituals. And I'm trying to figure out now, for me as an artist, what are the counter anthems um, for justice? What are the counter anthems for for, for peace and, and understanding and, rec and, um, and resolution. So that's, that's where I'm at. Um, you know, that's vibrating with me at the moment. Do hugs mean more to you now? Do uh -huh. smiles mean Absolutely. more to you now than they did before of this? Of course, they, you know, yeah. Reson they, they resonate big time. Thanks to feature contributors Colin Morgan, Jonah Chester, Tom Kamenick, Jennifer Fields, engineer Dave Lawrenson, producer Date Nate Wegehout, and news director Shally Pittman. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for listening to the WORT Live Local News at 6, and stay tuned for the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening. Good night.